Yo, it's Jason Ma. You're watching Anything Is Possible. I'm Patrick Sang, global citizen, investor. Join me as I talk with global influencers for their insight, wisdom, and how they overcame their own personal challenges. Sharing positivity, overcoming challenges, creating one world together. I'm Patrick Sang, anything is possible. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Anything is Possible. We have a special guest today, Jason Ma. He's a very good friend of mine. He's a serial entrepreneur. We share some common topics and common um, ground of what to do next, which is bridging east to west. He's a serial entrepreneur. He's a mentor. Um, he started more companies than I have, invested more companies than I have. So, <laughs> Jason, welcome to the show. Well, that was uh, very generous. Thank you. We have to. We very have excited to be on the show today, Patrick. We have to lie sometimes, Jason. Anyway, jokingly aside, um, we've been uh, friends for some while. You know, we've missed each other physically for some time now because we've been um, not traveling as much as we used to. I guess we had a, a race of um, seeing who would fly the most, and now we're the total opposite. Tell us about what what about your COVID experience so far? Uh, the COVID experience, I think, has been. Um interesting for the simple fact that I'm in the good old US of A. And uh, I don't think the United States is doing too well with the coronavirus and the pandemic. Um, I was able to escape to uh, Cabo, Mexico in the summer uh, for three weeks just to get away and work from remote, which was a nice little break. And I think about a month ago now, yeah, probably about four weeks ago, I got to go to Dubai it was the only place that would accept an American passport at the time. And uh, we tested 96 hours before, got on Emirates, landed. Life was fantastically normal in Dubai. Didn't want to leave, but I had to come back uh, to handle, handle business. But uh, I'm safe. Thankful to God that I don't have COVID. I've tested more than half a dozen times. Uh, but I now know probably at least a good almost two dozen people that have COVID. And uh, it's, it's, it's real and it's scary. Um, and uh, you gotta be careful. Of course. So regarding COVID, as you know, the show, Jason, we're trying to share positivity to everyone, especially young people. What kind of advice would you give to the younger people during this time? Probably what everyone else is saying. Uh, wear a mask, wash your hands, social distance. I mean, I think the problem in the West is people, half the people don't believe it's real. Uh, and you can give props and shout outs to President Trump for that. And then you have another half of people in the United States that believe it's very real. And it shows you how polarized uh, our country is. Um, but I think deep down, it has more to do with American culture, American philosophy, I think it's written in our constitution, uh, land of the free, home of the brave. And what that means is land of the free means I do what I want and I don't give whatever an F you do or care about what I do. And second, home of the brave, why should I wear a mask? That's not brave. That's not courageous. And so, you know, I think there's an, it's, it's, it's somehow in our DNA 
uh, not to think about others, right? It's an independent country where everyone's individual rights matters. And that's the beautiful thing of this country. At the same time, it's also a very dangerous thing uh, about this country. And you look at the East, or places like Asia, where you are, um, and, you know, when you say it's time to lock down, whether you're in Korea, Japan, China, Vietnam, Taiwan, everyone locks down. And, and, and the Asians know how to follow orders. And then, of course, coronavirus goes down and in many places goes away, uh, like Taiwan or even New Zealand. Uh, you know, I consider it New Zealand, Asia, you know, but, you know, they're able to, to follow orders, especially when it has to do with safety, security, and, you know, just looking out for other people like your neighbors, because they could be, you know, infected and, and seriously, you know, uh, uh, in danger of their lives if, we, if we're not safe. So anyways, my point is that, you know, there's a very difference of philosophy from a Western philosophy in how to react to this virus versus an Eastern philosophy. And the proof is in the pudding. You see, in, you see it in the numbers, you see it decreasing in the East, increasing in the West. Until we get a vaccine, I don't think we're really gonna see the light of day here in the United States. I think it's the same everywhere, Jason. I think I agree with you that in my personal opinion, it'll take one to three years before things normalize or I wouldn't use the word normalize because I don't think it'll be normal again. It'll, be a, it'll definitely be a new normal. But moving back, let's talk about you know, the earlier years of your life. How were you as a, as a child? <laughs> also, as a child, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's a loaded question, man. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, I was a punk. I was, a, I was a problem child. That's that's the kind of child I was, you know. And so, I, I don't know what uh, question you want to ask and how deep you want to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but I got a lot of stories from my childhood. Um, but you know, I got kicked out of three high schools. Uh, ended up in my fourth uh, in San Jose, California. And uh, that's where I found Jesus Christ. And thankfully, he saved me from going to jail. And um, I'm still here living, breathing, clothes on my back and, 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 and can take you know, care of myself. So I'm very thankful I didn't end up being a statistic. Understand. And then um, what was your story behind you know, starting to become an entrepreneur? Um, that's a great question. I do think a lot of it has to do with your upbringing. It has to do with your father, your mother, um, seeing how they, you know, uh, uh, live their lives. My father was an entrepreneur. Um, but at the same time, my father was also a minister. Um, and so it's quite kind of interesting if I look back, you know, and I've shared the story before in interviews and podcasts that when I was seven, my dad asked me what I want to be when I grow up. And I took out a white piece of paper and I drew three pictures of myself. And one was me in a business suit with a suitcase and a tie uh, and a suitcase in hand. The second was me with a French Pierre cap and a paintbrush and a paint palette in my hands. And the third was me behind a church pulpit with a crucifix behind me preaching. And my father asked me in Cantonese and he said, I said, well, dad, Monday through Friday, I'm going to be a businessman like you. Saturday, I'm going to be an artist. And Sunday, I'm going to be a preacher. And my dad said, huh, 
right? Smart Alec. <laughs> and uh, who would have thought, you know, 35 plus years later, um, or whatever, 40, I just turned 40, believe it or not, I'm over the hill. Uh, 33 years later, all right, man. Um, thank God Asians don't raise them. Um, 33 years later, I, I, I had a different chapter in my life where I lived out each of those different profiles in my drawing at seven years old. And so I always tell people, you know, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans because it never ends up the way you think it's going to end up. Now I had a vision when I was seven that I was going to be an entrepreneur. I also had a vision I was going to be an artist. I also had a vision that I'd be a, a preacher. But the chronological order of that, I could not have concocted or planned myself. It definitely was, you know, providence or, or, or divine, or it kind of just happened the way it happened. So anyways, how did I become an entrepreneur was, I was always an entrepreneur. You know, when I, when I, was, when I was 12 years old, I sold candy door to door, you know, just to make 20 bucks a day and $1 bills so I can go and, and feel like, you know, I was rich. And then when I was 15, uh, I started working at the mall. Uh, and that's where I started getting into trouble. I got kicked out of seven different stores that I was working for. Uh, I started at TCBY Yogurt. I still remember that. I was, that was my first job, selling yogurt. Then I was working at Champ Sports. And I got kicked out of Champs because I brought a 40 ounce of, 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 of beer to, to, to the back room during my break because I bought it from the liquor store illegally. And then I started work for a lotion company selling lotion, like people walking by the mall and like asking women to like show me their, their, their nails so I could like scrub them down and, and help make them buy a bottle of, you know, <laughs> $20 lotion. And then my boss was a Vietnamese thug that would then take the money we made and go smoke out in the back of, of the, of, of, of the mall, you know, uh, marijuana and weed. And then of course I ended up at my first real entrepreneurial job. Uh, I was working at Armani Valentino store and I was uh, running a, a money laundering rink at 16 years old where I was basically laundering Armani and Valentino suits um, with my two buddies in crime, Filipino dude and Indian dude. Um, and, uh, and we got caught and, and, uh, you know, the police came and were out to get me. Um, you know, I knew they didn't have what they said they had on me, but it was my come to Jesus moment. My mom was praying for me for a long, long time. And I was just like, you know, I just need to get my life right. I'm on my way to juvenile hall. I got a strike against me. Um, and I think I need to get my life right with God. And, you know, that was the turning point. I decided to turn myself in and told the truth. Cop decided to let me go. They lost my court case for six months. I went from straight S to straight A's, became a Jesus freak. Get a letter in the mail six months later saying I gotta go to, the, go to court. They postponed my case three times. And on the third time, the judge says, we know you pleaded guilty, but we decided that you can go free. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. And so I walked out of that courtroom like nothing ever happened to this day. And I knew I wanted to make a difference with my life. So the next thing I started was how do I get my kids, my friends that are drug dealers or druggies, South Asian, Vietnamese, Cambodian gangsters, or my hip hop buddies, okay, that were breakdancing, b-boying, and DJing to come and find Jesus and God. So I started a hip hop Bible study. That thing blew up on a Tuesday night in the hood in East San Jose, the hundreds, every Tuesday night. Next thing you know, I'm like this little youth minister by accident. 
And then MC Hammer starts preaching at this mega church about 30 minutes across town every Sunday night. And I was like, God damn, MC Hammer? Of course, I'm going to go listen to MC Hammer come and talk about the Bible. So I went and listened to MC Hammer for almost some year. And then we would do a big hip-hop outreach once a year. And I just thought, how dope would that be if I got MC Hammer to come speak at my hip-hop outreach? So I chased him down for six months. And then finally, I got a hold of him. And he was like, you know what? I like the vision. I like what you're trying to do to you know, get kids off the streets and off the drugs you know what, and into the church, I'll come and speak, I'll come and perform. And he said, by the way, I like your hustle, what do you do? And I was like, well, I work at this little tech startup in Cupertino across from Apple Computer on Stevens Creek Boulevard, making websites for small businesses. And he was like, what? You work at a startup in tech? He goes, I invest in tech, I invest in startups, I'm a venture capitalist, you're Asian, you must know how to use computers, come work for me. And I was like, <laughs> Yo, you gotta be kidding me. MC Hammer, you're gonna, hell yeah, I'm gonna go work for you. And so I quit my job uh, immediately and uh, I started working for MC Hammer and I became his executive assistant. And a lot of people don't know that Hammer is a very, very successful entrepreneur after his Hall of Fame career in hip hop. He was one of the first celebrities in Silicon Valley investing in startups and so we were at youtube when it was five people above a pizza parlor in san mateo i still remember driving him over there and he went and met with chad hurley and steve chen um we were at salesforce with mark benioff and he was with mark when it was like less than 100 people you know twitter same thing it was like three people when jack started and hammer was like hey you ever thought about like asking questions and threading you know like i mean hammer truly is the first entrepreneur in hip hop and he made hip hop pop and he always was the one that had a vision to take rap culture and hip hop culture and make it mainstream and turn it into a business. He was the first one with a Pepsi commercial. He was the first one with his own cartoon, his own fashion line, you know, his own merchandise on and on and on and on. So he's always an entrepreneur. And you know, when I really think about it, it's really interesting because hammer was not just an entrepreneur. He was not just an artist, but he was also a minister. And so if you talk about the perfect mentor as a young 20-year-old, you couldn't get it better than MC Hammer. And I was very thankful that I was able to be his assistant, then his partner. And now 20 plus years later, you know, we're partners in multiple businesses and we co-invest. He's my black dad. And I'm very thankful, you know, that God put him in my life. But that's how I got started in entrepreneurship uh, with Hammer. It's a great story, Jason. So can you tell us what the number one lesson you learned from MC Hammer? Oh, man. The number one lesson I learned from MC Hammer. You're the first one to ask me that question. Always remember that when you work for MC Hammer, it's always hammer time. Okay. And what I mean by that is I would show up to a meeting with clients and he would show up an hour late, two hours late, four hours late, days late. You know what I'm saying? And I always had to figure out how to entertain his sure. clients, right? Because yeah. they'd be like, where's Hammer? I'm like, uh, mm, he's mm, somewhere, you know. And I just had to figure out how to keep his clients entertained or business partners entertained and, 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 and still conduct business. But, you know, when you work with MC Hammer, it's always Hammer time. That's, that's the one thing I can say I learned. 
That's really interesting, Jason. So Jason, I mean, there's so many things we can ask you regarding just a few things you mentioned earlier, but I, as, as you know, the show is really geared towards, uh, you know, young people and I have the similar kind of vision and help towards young people as much as possible. So obviously you, you came from a, a troubled youth. I was probably a lot more boring than you are. So I think we, you know, we obviously both have, you know, the Hong Kong connection where our parents immigrated you know, overseas to the UK for myself and the US for you respectively. And uh, I guess the Asian stereotype is we always study hard. We don't get into trouble. Um, and for me, I was like, you know, from a, from a principles and ethics point of view, I was very seriously influenced by the Chinese family side. But then at school, obviously I was very Westernized because I was going to a, you know, British school. So sort of like a half, half East West. That's why we share, you know, similar passions in your, in your, in your side. Um, generally a lot of the Asian kids, we don't really get into that kind of trouble. So where, where, where did you see that from your childhood that you went into the troubled side and did the Asian side from the, your parents' background, did that not stop you from getting the trouble in the first place? And then what kind of advice would you give to the, to the kids out there who are in, you know, similar kinds of situation now? How do you get out of it? Well, you know, I grew up in a single family home, right? My mom was a single mother. Um, her fa my father and my mother were separated before I was even born. Um, now, they had a very interesting relationship where they were still codependent on each other. And so, you know, all I can say that it wasn't a healthy home situation. It was very dysfunctional. And dad would come in and out, but I would never really see him that much, right? He was a businessman amongst other things. And, you know, my mom was just struggling, right? She was, she was, she was battling through depression, right? She was just trying to make ends meet and tried, trying to pay the rent. And so I think early on, I didn't have many role models, right? I had to kind of figure out how to be the man of the house at a very early age. That's why I started hustling. That's why I started working and selling candy at 12, right? And then selling drugs and then Armani suits and then on and on. The hustle was always there and the hustle was always in me. But you know, when I look back, probably the greatest blessing in my life was growing up with a troubled childhood. Because if I did not have the challenge and the pressure and nobody just handed me out, right? Uh, 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 an inheritance or, 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 or a check that I didn't have to work for, you know, then I would have never gained the skills and realized my potential, right? And I think every entrepreneur has to go through failure, has to go through pressure and struggle and, and, and learn how to triumph, right, over those challenges. And so, you know, a, a fighter never becomes a champion without a fight, right? And so I look back and it was very interesting. I think my mom was praying every day that I just didn't end up in jail. <laughs> and so, you know, she, she <laughs> straight A's was the furthest thing in her mind, right? <laughs> Being valedictorian or getting into Stanford was the furthest thing in her mind. She was just like, Dear God, just keep my son out of jail and don't let him die or get murdered or shot or killed, right? And so I think in that sense, you know, it was a very unorthodox childhood. Um, I would say this is that, you know, always, you know, dream big and, and do something that makes you scared. Because if it doesn't make you scared, then it doesn't really require anything from you. 
okay? And if it doesn't require anything from you, then it doesn't require you or cause you to have to suffer and sacrifice. And who wants to suffer and sacrifice? No one does, but it's only the people that suffer and sacrifice that end up achieving anything in our world and in history. And so if you're passionate about something, I always say, you're gonna be willing to suffer for it, right? If you're passionate about golf and you're Tiger Woods, you're gonna start hitting at the age of six. If you're passionate about basketball and you're Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, you're gonna run harder, do more laps, shoot more free throws and dribble more, more balls than anyone else, you know, in your, in your, in your league and in your, in your peer, peer group. So when you think about excellence, it's synonymous with sacrifice. It's synonymous with suffering. You don't get to greatness, right? Without working hard and doing what others are not willing to do. And so I think growing up, I was never given a handout. I was never given a free ticket. I was never given just an open door and a red carpet that was just handed to me, right? I had to earn every dollar. I had to work hard for every job position. I had to hustle my way and network my way and, and talk my way and work my way, right? To any, anything monetary that I ever achieved and I ever acquired. And so in that sense, I do think uh, the spirit of an entrepreneur is someone that takes risk, does what they're afraid to do, but they do it because they believe it can actually be worth it and make a difference. That's inspiring, Jason. So as you know, Sang's Group, our family office, we bridge east to west investing, either in China, bringing it globally, or to Western companies with a view of entering China, and obviously you, your company, East West Ventures. Um, where did you get the original idea, and then how has it evolved over the years? You know, I think growing up in America uh, as a Chinese American, uh, my parents were from Hong Kong, uh, grandfather is from Suzhou, Chaozhou, um, but he actually uh, studied uh, in Shanghai and, and, and grew up there and, and went to Fudan and uh, actually ended up serving uh, in, in a very high rank in the government. And, and, and after that uh, revolution, you know, he escaped to Hong Kong where that's where my father and, and mother were raised and found each other. Uh, and then my parents were probably the first international Chinese students at Pepperdine University. And that was their ticket, right, to the United States as international students. Growing up in the U.S., you know, it was very interesting because you don't see uh, Asian heroes uh, in media, in entertainment, in culture, in sports. And so I remember growing up, uh, the only people I saw on TV that looked like me was a guy named Yan Can Cook. And if you don't know who Yan Can Cook is, he was the original Uncle Roger you see now on YouTube. Okay, he was this Chinese American guy that did not have a Cantonese accent, but he spoke like Uncle Roger. Hello, my name is Yan Ken Cook. So can you look at this chop suey. Isn't it wonderful? So good, right? And it was just like hilarious, right? Because he sounded like my dad, right? But it was entertaining to white people, right? And it was the only thing I saw on Saturday morning 
after Saturday morning cartoons on PBS, right? It was Yank and Cook. And of course, the only other guy was, was Bruce Lee, right? But he was already dead before I was even born, right? And, and I'm watching these old reruns of Fist of Fury and Enter the Dragon. I'm like, yo, this dude is like the swaggiest, dopest human male specimen ever in history of humankind. But why is he dead? And so, like, I couldn't look anywhere and see anyone that I could look up to. And uh, I remember when Michael Chang, if you guys don't know who Michael Chang is because you're too young, um, he was the first Asian American, Asian American to will win a tennis World Cup. He won the French Open when he was 16 years old. When I saw that, I lost my mind. I was like, I'm going to be Michael Chang Jr. Like I started, you know, going out to the tennis court and started hitting, you know, tennis balls at six in the morning, right? Because because I thought, man, that's someone that achieved greatness, and he looks like me, and he talks like me right? And, and, and it feels like me. And so what was really interesting is most of the summers I would go back to Hong Kong to go visit my grandparents and my cousins. And then, you know, you go across on this 15-hour flight, you land in Hong Kong, and everybody looks like you, right? Everyone is like, what, what, who are you, right? I'm like, I'm Jason. I'm from America. I'm an ABC. What is ABC? <laughs> I'm American born Chinese, dude, right? What is dude, right? And then you see all these kids in Hong Kong and it's like this whole world of Asian people, right? And then when I grew up, that's when they had Asian cinema, right? When Hong Kong was like what K-pop is today, right? What Korean dramas and K-pop and BTS and Blackpink and Parasite is today, Korea being the Hollywood Asia of today, Hong Kong back in the 80s and 90s, as you know, was the Hollywood of Asia back then. And you had stars like Chow Yun-Fat and Tony Leung and Andy Lau and Stephen Chow, and they were making movies like God of Gamblers and, you know, Kung Fu Hustles, and, 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 and you're watching these movies, Better Luck Tomorrow, and you're, uh, or Better Tomorrow, and, you know, whatever, Once a Thief, and, and it was just such amazing filmmaking and you're seeing these Asian superstars, male and female. So I was honestly confused because I was just like, yo, we rule the world in Hong Kong. We rule the world out here in Asia. But when I go back to the US, I'm being discriminated on, right? I'm having, you know, white kids run up to me at the post office and be like, open your eyes and, you know, calling me chink and all this, you know, uh, uh, racism. And so I think growing up and seeing both worlds, the reality of Asian American having a chip on your shoulder and wanting to prove yourself that you can play ball with the rest of them, that you can be just as smart as them, that you can be just as swaggy and charismatic and win, you know, with the rest of them. But then going to Asia and seeing that way, it's like we're already winning out here and we got a lot more people in the United States in China than we do, you know, back in the States. I always kind of just saw both East and West growing up and just thought to myself, Maybe I was born to actually bridge this cultural gap. Maybe I was born to help my Asian brothers and sisters help understand my Western brothers and sisters and my Western brothers and sisters help understand my Asian culture. And so I think that was kind of where it really started for me uh, in my DNA. I, I wanted to make it my mission to bridge East and West through media, entertainment, technology, through stories and talent. And how that happened business-wise 
you know, that's a whole other story. It's a great story, Jason. I mean, I, I have similar um, stories to you where, you know, when I grew up in a predominantly uh, white country in Ireland, I was the only non-white, you know, kid and I was bullied from a young age. And then you always felt when you're in the UK and Ireland for that matter, you were always the minority. And then obviously I went back to Hong Kong for holidays and stuff. And then you would see uh, that you don't look like a minority, but in fact, you were a minority because when I actually moved to Hong Kong, in the late 90s in my first job people didn't see you as you know a hong kong chinese person they would see you physically as a hong kong chinese person but once you start speaking your body language your mannerisms right. and the way you grew up and then you find out that actually you're not accepted in hong kong also right so i think we share something similar where i think it's what's it called the third culture kid or whatever where you know I think we, you realize as we evolve and we grow up and we, we become, you know, global citizens where, you know, we could be in Singapore and Dubai, you know, in America or wherever we may be, I will still quite global would think better. And that's why one of the missions for, you know, anything is possible is to create one world together where we try and break down barriers and, you know, everyone's the same. I mean, you in hip hop and, you know, a Chinese, American kids involved in hip hop. And it's just so strange to me when I was young. And in, in fact, when I grew up, I didn't even know what hip hop was. And it's become mainstream. It's cool. And, you know, and, and it's quite interesting. So um, how is it? I mean, what's the mission now in terms of East West, in terms of what's the difficulties now? You know, we've also got big challenges like the US-China trade war. Um, obviously, you have one rising power and one dominant power. And there will be conflict of some sort, but what do you see and how should we go about trying to bridge this, this gap that we have now between the two cultures? Well, I always say that culture, right, is not mainly and really about politics, right? Culture is about food. Culture is about arts. Culture is about fashion. Culture is about music. Culture is about storytelling, right? And it's, it's, it's to the very lampstand behind you, right? With, with, with the porcelain, right? That's a very Asian uh, aesthetic, right? And so to me, culture is about soft power. It's about influence. And the best way to create understanding is for people to listen. And for people to listen, they have to receive a story or a form of communication that will help them understand the other side. And so to me, the best form of cultural bridging in today's world is content, right? What is, what is media? What is entertainment? What is film? What is fashion? What is music? What is art, right? What is sports? And there's a reason why the Olympics brings the whole world together, right? Because sports is something that is cross-cultural, right? Everyone can play basketball. Everyone can run on the trap meet. Everyone can swim. We're all humans, right? We just come from different cultures. We come from different ethnicities. And so to me, the most powerful form of impacting culture is media. And Allen Ginsberg, a very famous philosopher uh, in the U.S., once said, whoever controls media 
controls the minds and behavior of the culture. And I'm sure this is the reason why you're doing the Anything is Possible podcast, because you want to bring the world together. And whether you're hearing my story or Tim Draper's story or, you know, Donnie Yen's story or Elon Musk's story, right? These are all human stories. These are all stories of entrepreneurs. And you realize, wait a second, even though I'm yellow and you're white and you're black and you're brown, we all have a lot in common, right? We all have the struggles of every entrepreneur and having to fail, having to sacrifice, having to be without money, having to raise money, having to go and take risk and, and hopefully gain big, big rewards. But end of the day, to me, what's gonna bridge the gap is being able to tell stories of our cultures uh, to both sides. And that's why I think uh, Parasite was just a beautiful uh, example of soft power. You know, if you know Mickey Lee, um, the, the, the chairwoman of CJ Entertainment, she's been backing this director, Bong Joon-ho, for decades, right? And, and, and film and funding every movie because she knew this guy had, was so talented. He was like the Spielberg, right? The Christopher Nolan of Korea. And if he was just given the right platform that the stories he told from a Korean perspective that were human in nature could actually inspire and unite the world. And you saw that at last year's Academy Award when Parasite swept every single category from best movie to best director to screenplay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what was it about Parasite that was so powerful that could bridge both East and West? Well, yes, it was all Korean cast in the Korean language, in a Korean setting, in Korea, directed by a Korean, acted by Koreans. But what was the movie really about? It was about the haves and have-nots. It was about the upper echelon versus the lower echelon. It was about the rich and the poor and disparity between that and how they were all so similar and at the same time also corrupt. And you know what? That's true in San Francisco, New York, London, Hong Kong, Mumbai, you know, wherever in the world, that is a issue and a disparity that all of us as humans understand, right? It just happened to be told through the perspective of a Korean director. And so to me, that's the power of story. I truly believe in storytelling. I believe that it's stories and talent that change the world. And, 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 and if we can empower more of that uh, between cultures, we wouldn't have the type of tension that we have. Unfortunately, look, it's a Fox CNN world in America. Unfortunately, I can't trust Fox. I can't trust CNN. I don't trust anything because it's all fake news to me, right? And at the same time, I know I can't trust Facebook or Google either because they're just trying to make me watch more ads, watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix, right? And then at the same time, you look at Asia and it doesn't have a global media brand or voice that can tell its story to the world because then you're, you know, some government-backed news agency or you're, you know, <laughs> totally local or, you know, you, you, or you don't have the sensibility in how to communicate to the rest of the, of the globe and the rest of the Western world. And so there is a gap. There is a gap because people are being told one thing when in reality it's another thing, right? I'm just 
like yesterday, I think I was, I was, I was, I was, I was watching this guy, Uncle Roger. He's hilarious. You know, he's the, the guy in London that wears an orange polo shirt and comments with a Cantonese accent. But, you know, he got beat up. <laughs> he got beat up and got Asian hate crimes in London, right? And it's hilarious. And he's like, I don't know why. For no reason. Dude, just punch me in the face, right? And he's like, you know what you did, right? I experienced the same thing in L.A. right when the pandemic started. You know, there was, there was a black brother on a motorcycle pulled up in front of my car and just started cursing at me. He was like, you did this to us and he wanted to kill me, right? And I'm like, yo, brother, I didn't do nothing, man. <laughs> I'm not from Wuhan, right? It's like, you know, but like, my point is, is that it's, it's, it's the media, it's the movies, right? It's, it's, it's the content on YouTube that is being controlled by a very specific perspective that's telling a very specific story saying, oh, it's the Chinese virus. Oh, Asians are all like this. Oh, it's the red dragon, right? And, and, and we can't trust them because they're doing this and they're doing that. But then when you actually get down into the culture and you actually meet the people on the ground, you actually listen to how they see the world and how they see life, you realize we're not that much different and there's no one to blame, um, but the evil media empires. <laughs> but uh, anyways, you know, I, I think you get my drift. I do think that it's, it's gonna be soft power. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be the stories that we tell that actually bring us together or bring us further apart. Yes, Jason, so I, I totally agree with you. I mean, my personal philosophy is that I believe that I always say this on the show, which is, you know, if we get a knife and we cut every single person, we all bleed the same color. So it's just that we may eat spicier food or less spicier food but you know we all want the same thing you know which is health you know love care shelter better education for our, our kids and the next generation so you know i think you've said this numerous times both you know with me and also on your on some of your podcasts and other interviews which is you know one thing that we all need more of the world is, is love basically that's what we all need more of and, and to do more and that's the reason why we're so passionate about what we're doing but um, another thing which is quite interesting recently, congratulations on um, the Tyson fight on Triller. Um, tell us about the journey on Triller and, and uh, Iron Mike. Um, you know, you know I, 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 I've been very, very blessed. I've been very lucky, you know, in my investments and the companies that I've been able to co-found and start. Um, I was an early investor in Musical.ly. Uh, which was then acquired by Bike Dance and now has become the largest and highest valued startup in the world, I, Bike Dance or TikTok, um, at 200 billion plus last round. And when I saw Triller, uh, which was introduced to me through a Metro Capital friend, Adam in SF, who was at, then at, I believe, Venrock Capital, and he asked me to meet uh, a, a young Asian American CEO named Mike Liu. And this was around early 2018. And uh, he showed me a uh, Triller. And it was at the time really an, an editing tool and an app that basically edited photo and video to music. And it was similar to Musical.ly, but it was very unique in its own way. And it was tracking primarily in the African-American community among youth, black, young black youth that love hip hop. And so immediately, of course, <laughs> I was like, yo, this is dope. And, 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 and we took a look at it uh, from our fun perspective, but it was still very early. And the MAU and DAU was just very, very 
early, early. So we were like, hey, you know, keep growing, keep building the platform. And, and, and as it grows, you know, let me stay on, you know, as, a, as an advisor to just help in any wish or shape that I can. And, um, and that's what I did. And then around 2019, um, I, I saw some similar uh, narratives that I had experienced at Musical.ly happen with Triller. Um, so I brought the first few major celebrities onto Musical.ly. Um, that's how I got allocation uh, for our fund, Goodwater Capital, um, our venture uh, firm that focused on consumer tech and allocation. Because at the time, Greylock and all these other major firms in Silicon Valley were fighting all against each other for allocation and Musical.ly. And here we were, this new fund on the block, not a big name yet, and, but we met the founders and they were like, well, what's your value add? So as a venture partner, venture partner, network partner of the platform, I came over and said, hey, uh, let me introduce you to some major Hollywood celebrities because at the time, Musical.ly didn't have any major celebrities. It was mainly tweens and young people and some YouTubers and whatnot, but not like an A-list celebrity star. So there's a funny story. I was in Shanghai in 2000, that was, that was 2016, I believe, with Paris Hilton, believe it or not. And I was with Paris Hilton and we're there for the Shanghai Fashion Show. And I said to Paris, I said, Paris, there's this really, really dope new app called Musical.ly and it's tracking. And I was like, you gotta go and, 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 and visit this company. So we walked into Musical.ly in Shanghai. By the way, Musical.ly was a Chinese company and founded by Chinese founders. And we walk into Musical.ly with like 50 young Asian kids in Shanghai and it's Paris Hilton, you know, like bombshell Paris Hilton, like the Paris Hilton, like just like a catwalk. And these kids are just like, what is going on? And she starts using the app. And then we did the first live stream with her DJ concert on Musical.ly. It went so well. And I was like, look, I'll get you Ariana Grande, but you got to give me allocation. And they are at that time like, yo, we're believers. And so that's how I ended up getting a allocation to invest in Musical.ly. Uh, we were able to deliver Ariana onto the platform. And then from Ariana, you saw Bieber and Selena Gomez and all these other, and then Musical.ly took off and scaled and they got acquired. Now, fast forward, 2019, I'm now seeing Chance the Rapper, Cardi B, Chris Brown, Eminem, all post Triller videos to their social media. But they're using Triller as an app to edit their videos and then reposting it onto their social channels with the Triller watermark. And I'm like, wait a second. I know what's happening when this happens. When you're not paying the celebrities, but they're doing because they think it's cool, they think it's dope, and they really mess with the brand. I was like, that's when you're going to start seeing the ability to scale. And so funny enough, I'll tell you a funny story. Um... I was in London around that same time speaking at a Founders Forum event uh, with Brett Halberman on digital media, I still remember. And I have one Asian friend in London that's in the government, in the House of Lords, and he's the only Lord that's Asian, and his name is Lord Wei, W-E-I. And he's like, Jason, you're in London. Come to the House of Lords. I want to give you a whole tour and show you where I work. And I'm like, yo, how cool is that? Hell yeah, I'll go to So he brings me to the house of Lords, shows me the whole tour. And at the end, he's like, oh, there's a little cough, a tea room. And this is where Princess Diana and Princess, Prince Charles and all these people all have had tea. So we walk into the tea room and there's these three um, 
there's just three British Brits, you know, having tea there. And my buddy, Lord Way goes, Hey, these are my friends. They are music AI PhD professors from Oxford. And he was like, you guys need to meet Jason. Jason invested in musically. He works with Tencent music. You guys need to connect. They're like, we have to meet you. We have to meet you. Give us 30 minutes. We got to show you what we're working on. I was like, well, I got to go back to speak at the conference. I'm leaving in 24 hours, but look, you guys can meet me four o'clock here in London, 30 minutes. They come, they show me their technology. It's called Mass Tracks. And it was actually very impressive. And I've seen a lot of music tech that was not impressive. It was just gimmicks or a little bit of improvement, but this was like absolutely disruptive where you can take any photo and video, put it to the AI, and the AI will automatically edit any footage, the same footage, to 100 different songs, 100 different ways. And I was like, whoa. I was like, what are you guys doing with this? And they're like, well, we got offered to be bought by a major social media platform for 60 million pounds, or we're going to go raise 15 million pounds to go launch our own TikTok competitor. I said, I have a third idea for you that's even better. Why don't you guys come back with me to LA? And there's this company I advise called Triller. And I believe if you merge with Triller, we can become the next TikTok. And you know, my partner, Ryan Cavanaugh and Bobby, you know, were already looking into uh, uh, acquiring Triller at the time. And so when I came back and said, hey, check out this music AI company, it just became a perfect marriage. And then I was able to raise the initial uh, main capital and myself invested uh, uh, with a family office out of Taiwan that we work very closely with. Um, and, and the rest is history. We acquired it in last September. And then uh, we just, you know, our most recent round is, is a unicorn round. Um, if you want to know how the Mike Tyson ha fight happened, um, I have another story there. All right. You're smiling. I guess you want to hear. No, <laughs> so, no, 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 no. That, that, that's really cool, Jason. Um, I guess, you know, in life as an entrepreneur, not even just as an entrepreneur, but, you know, whether in business or personal, a lot of things that you can't control in life and a lot of things are quite random that, you know, the fact that, you couldn't have met the guys if you didn't see Lord Wade in the House of Lords. So I guess, right. you know, if you work harder, you create your own luck by presenting yourself in more opportunities to meet more people, to see more opportunities that arise. I think as an entrepreneur myself, the, the, the important thing is just to do the best you can and just make and see where different things fall together. And I think, you know, you've, you've gone through phases of evolution of change from, you know, a troubled kid to, a preacher to entrepreneur and now you know I, I guess you have different hats all the time um and now during the COVID time new normal i think we discussed last time um on a zoom call which is um how to adapt uh, to situations and um that's the thing to do to keep adapting um so any new projects or initiatives that you're looking at um there is uh, you know i'm working on it on, on a secret project um that is basically what we're talking about, um, bridging East and West through media entertainment and technology. I'm building a, a publishing platform that will basically be a voice uh, for Asian youth culture globally and to tell the stories uh, from Asia by Asians to the rest of the world. And, and the mission is to give every Asian young person a microphone, you know, to tell their story. Um, and so I'm building that platform right now. It's very exciting. Uh, it's gonna be a very differentiated uh, UI and UX um, and and stories that I believe have been untold 
and but it's going to be done in a way where we actually socialize editorial stories uh, from Asia to the world, but through a digital platform. And so it's never been done before, the socialization of editorial content. And so, like I said, I truly believe that it's, it's, it's talent and stories. And when these stories can be proliferated through the medium of digital media or social video, as we see today dominating with TikTok and Triller and Instagram and Snap, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that is where young people are consuming content. They are consuming content on their mobile phones. They are consuming their content mainly by video, right? Mainly by audio, video, and text, but in a whole new way. And so I think, you know, for me, this is a passion project and taking uh, all that I've learned in the multiple companies that I've started and invested into and taking those learnings and uh, consolidating and integrating and converging them into one. And so that's, Going to be launched early next year. Uh, I'll tell you more about it. I think this is my, going to be my most ambitious project to date. Um, but I will say that probably, uh, you know, in this pandemic, my most ambitious project was this crazy Mike Tyson, <laughs> Roy Jones Jr. fight that, you know, I mean, basically early May last year, I got a phone call uh, from a, a, a friend named Sophie Watts. And she called me, I still remember, it was May 2nd, Saturday morning. And she said, Jason, she's British. I'm probably going to kill the British accent, by the way, when I do this. She's like, Jason, Mike Tyson, comeback fight. Who you got? What do you want to do? You're the first person I'm calling. And I'm like, uh, give me 60 minutes. I'll call you back. <laughs> so I literally was like, okay. And originally I'm thinking like, who do I know? Is, is there like a fight network or a fight platform. And so, you know, the first call was to this one fight platform and we negotiated and it was Tyson versus another fighter that I won't name. And long story short, it didn't go down. And then she was getting offers, you know, from, you know, all the major networks from cable networks to, you know, uh, uh, the free to air networks and offers on the table, you know, hundreds, you know, big, big, big checks. And I was like, what if we did it on Triller? And she was like, I still remember, she's like, interesting. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, like we've never hosted a live event or a boxing fight, but that'd be kind of crazy, right? And I was like, I was like, I was like, what if we actually were able to put the fight on Triller and leverage the social video and social interaction and all the celebrities on the platform to make the the fight you know go viral right and and, and promote it and market it through social media and uh she was really into it and uh and so what happened was end up connecting her with my partner ryan cavanaugh who's uh uh the co-owner of, of triller and we were able through months and months and months and months of crazy negotiations uh, able to get the deal done. And then I would say weeks before the fight, of course, a thousand and one things were going wrong. But like you said, sometimes it's just meant to happen. And the bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. And we just got uh, the numbers in uh, earlier this week. It was the number eight most pay-per-viewed watched boxing fight in history. Uh, 
Uh, it became an eternal cultural moment with the Nate Robinson challenge with Jake Paul knocking out NBA three-time dunk champion Nate Robinson out cold two, three minutes on the ground and hashtag Nate Robinson challenge meme is forever now embedded in Twitter and Instagram and TikTok around the world. Um, but more than that, you know, what I was very thankful for was that we were able to put on an event that literally bridged boomer generation to Gen Z in one four hour event. And we were able to bring hip hop meets boxing and resurrect the sport from the grave. Where now when I was meeting with my buddy last night, who's a hardcore boxing, you know, Gen Z, Gen X, you know, he's almost 50. And he said, Jason, you have no idea what you've done for my son. He's 19. And all he can do is not stop talking about the Mike Tyson, Jake Paul fight. Right. And now, and how now there's a Mayweather fight and it's, it's got this whole resurgence. Right. And it was just amazing that we could bring the whole world together, entertain the whole world, put smiles on people's faces on Thanksgiving weekend when everyone in America and, and most of the Western world was locked down and, and deliver an entertaining fight where literally it was like a mu hip hop music video meets WBC world boxing championship and do something that was disruptive, but do something that really blessed the world. And I think that that was, my greatest achievement in this pandemic uh, to see history made and a cultural moment uh, created and, and family and lives brought together and people smile. Yeah, great achievement, uh, Jason. I think it was a, a great initiative and you know you made it happen. And um, you know Tyson's always been a enigma and also a, a great uh, boxer, one of my favorites of all time. So it was really good to see him come back. A lot of people were against the idea that, you know, 50 plus year old would come back to the ring, but it was done really safely and broadcasted the world. So, you know, well done and congrats on that. So um, let's talk about um, negativity. Have you turned a negative situation in the past and turned it into a positive one? Absolutely. I think um, in life, you're always going to face setbacks but you have to look at every setback as a setup to get you started into your next success. And I look at failure as an opportunity for another success because every failure is a lesson. And if you can learn that lesson and not repeat it again, then it will set you up for greater success. Uh, as humans, we are prone to fail because none of us are perfect. Uh, that's why we need each other. That's why we need faith, why we need God. Um, but I do think that a true leader has a leadership perspective, and I learned this in, in seminary uh, uh, when I was studying a course on leadership. And I still remember it was a very famous professor who, who, who uh, educated and, and, and did courses on global leadership. His name was Bobby Clinton. And he had a book and he called it the term leadership perspective, that a leader always looks at a situation with the lens of a leader. They don't look at the problem, but they look at a problem not as something that is going to stop them, but they look at a problem as something that they have to solve and from solving it, they gain something more from it and can do even more. They look at failure. They look at 
struggle. They look at, you know, the perfect storm of bad things happening as an opportunity to reflect, be introspective, and say, okay, did I contribute to this failure? Was there any responsibility on my side uh, uh, that, 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 that forced me or made me to make this mistake? Well, then you know what? Own it. Take responsibility. Learn from it. Become better. And grow. And I think that is how a leader looks at failure, looks at problems, looks at challenges, looks at setbacks as an opportunity to grow, mature, and become a better version of themselves. So that to me, whenever I've gone through so many, you know, a business deal gone wrong, a business partner that backstabbed me, even today, right? I mean, there's so many things that are going on that I can't control and people that didn't keep their word and people that, you know, said they were going to do this but ended up doing the opposite. You know, you can take it and, 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 and be bitter or you can take it and be better. And so you can either take it and be pitiful or you can take it and be powerful, right? And so for me, you know, everything comes with a lesson and everything comes, you know, with something that can help me become a better leader in order to serve others uh, uh, with my best self. Super advice, uh, Jason. I guess it's, you know, what we share in common also where we talked about during COVID, instead of moping and complaining, you know, we can't go out, we can't do this. We've actually done much more, in fact, during this year than previous year. So, you know, just make the best of each situation. So something a bit like more lighthearted, is there any book or movie that you've read or watched that have inspired you? Would you like to share with the audience? Um, I've been watching a lot of Dave Chappelle lately. <laughs> man, is he a genius. You know, man, is he the greatest of all time. Um, I just think his life is so inspiring um, because he's, he knows who he is and he knows what he wants. And at the same time, he's not willing to give up his integrity um, to achieve and to serve the world, the gift that God's blessed him with, which is comedy. I think recently seeing him host Saturday Night Live, um, give a stand-up during the midst of the pandemic in Black Lives Matter. Uh, I think it was called Eight Minutes and 36 Seconds on Netflix. And then most recently on his Instagram, uh, he put up this 30-minute stand-up, or I would even say not even stand-up, it was like a satire uh, speech called Unforgiven um, about the reason why he felt so wronged by Comedy Central stealing his brand and his IP and the lessons he learned from that and, uh, and, and what he wants to do about that. Um, I just think he is truly someone that we can look up to who's taken destiny into his own hands uh, 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 and, and really doing what he believes is right and not being afraid to say it, especially in such a hashtag cancel culture world that we live in today. It's very refreshing to have someone that makes you laugh so hard and at the same time think so hard uh, and, and, and at the same time uplift humanity. I, I've been just a, just a huge fan of Dave Chappelle recently and I think everyone should watch every single Dave Chappelle episode, season one, two, and three, every single one of his stand-up comedies, and hashtag Boycott Chappelle Show, because it is effed up what Comedy Central is doing with his IP that belongs to him. Uh, they should at least 
you know, give him something for what he created. And I get it. There's legalities and all that. But end of the day, you know, you, you deserve what you work for and what you created. And uh, I, I think what he's saying is very justified. And I support him all the way. That's great. He's a, obviously a great role model. So, Jason, you mentioned before um, Dave and also Hammer. Are there other people in your life that were role models for you when you were growing up and even now to this day? I mean, my mom, you know? I mean, I think who's not going to give props to their mom, right? Um, I think mothers have it the hardest. I think they're the strongest. I think they suffer the most. I think they have a thankless job. And, and they do all the hard work and, and it's not easy being a mother, you know, uh, it's a whole nother level of care and, and, and anxiety and stress and compassion and love that I don't think men can understand. Uh, I think we can to a certain degree, but I think there's something about a mother's connection with her, with her own children, um, that is novel and 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 distinctively unique to uh the female gender and and i just think women are the most intelligent species i truly believe that <laughs> we are a lot smarter than you and i and i i also think they are they are the most caring and and the most empathetic and 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 they're what keeps this word we're calling love alive you know what is what is love without a mother and, uh, and so, uh, you know, I think, I just thank my mom for, you know, suffering and raising us as a single child mother, taking care of kids just to pay the rent and put food on the table when we didn't know if we had it the next month to the next month, you know, and I'm thankful today that I can, you know, have enough, uh, resources and, and prosper enough that I can take care of her and have her retire. Um, but I'll never be able to thank her enough for, for what she sacrifice to give me the life that I have today. And so, you know, it's definitely my mom for sure. Yeah. Moms are the best, Jason. No one can compare. Um, principles and ethics. What principles and ethics do you live by and how do you uphold them? Great question. <clears throat> I think at the end of the day, integrity, which is your character, is everything. You know, you can build a thousand buildings, but if you lose your integrity, uh, you can lose everything in, in one second. And second for me is humility. And to me, humility is owning and accepting who you really are versus who you're not. I think the greatest temptation in life is vanity. It's not sex. It's not drugs. It's not money. It's not even power. It's the perception of power. It's a perception of what you want others to think you are when you're not. And that desire to want to be something that you don't believe you already are and the, the insatiable greed and ambition to pursue something that is not real leads people into great trouble. And, 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 and I think it's, 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 it's the lie that I'm not enough, that I need to be 
performing more. I need to make more. I need to do more, right, in order to be more, right? Um, and I think it's, it's a lie uh, that says you're, 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 you're not enough, so therefore you need to be X. And I think humility is, you know what, owning up to who you really are, whether you're struggling, you're depressed, you need therapy, you need help, you need to work out, you know, you have made mistakes, you know, whatever it is. Um, but to me, that's character. Character is owning your mistakes. It's, it's, it's taking responsibility for your failures. But again, like I said, being honest about it, accepting who you really are, not trying to be something that you're not, and moving forward and just trying to be a better person. Uh, and so I think that for me has been my saving graces. I've made many mistakes. I have many enemies. I have many people that don't like me and judge me and think ill will of me. And I used to care a lot about what people thought about me. I used to care, hey, why don't they like me? Or why don't they return my call? Or why don't they respond to my text? <laughs> or, or, or why is that girl not liking me back, right? And, 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 and I used to feel so down. I used to feel you know, so much shame uh, because of the mistakes that I made. But I realized, you know what? You can't change people's perception of you. Uh, what you can do is, is learn from your mistakes, uh, accept who you are, be humble, work hard, but never stop trying. And if you never stop trying, I truly believe that God's good, God's good graces are going to be on your side and you'll eventually uh, become who you're supposed to be and win in life. Absolutely, Jason. Well said. Uh, I think two th comments I would say to that. One is um, I always say, you know, perception is reality. So unfortunately, media which is something that we both look at and invest in is, you know, the media controls how people think and that's why it's so powerful. And then secondly is I think Bruce Lee once said that the most difficult thing in life is actually to how to honestly express yourself and you can't lie to yourself. So that's great advice. So moving on, what's your life ethos? Ethos. That's an interesting question. If you were asking me my life mission, I could answer that. But if you want to say, what is my life ethos? Um, Harmony, uh, integration, wholeness, and and just the ability to to know that I'm blessed and be able to bless others. You know, I think that is my 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 motto when I wake up. I don't do anything because I have to do it. I'm so blessed that I can do things because I want to do it. And I think both you and I, Patrick, are very blessed that way. That you know, we're not old, but we're not young, um, but we're in the prime of our age and we have everything we need to, to, to enjoy life and, and to do things that we care about and th do things that we believe in and invest in companies or projects that, you know, we get excited about and how many people don't have that luxury uh, and are working nine to fives and working for companies or bosses that they don't like or hate and, and are just trying to make it to the next meal and to the next rent check. You know, um, I hope that whatever we do can help everyone and anyone that's in need to be able to prosper and to be blessed and to have independence and freedom uh, to live a happy life, uh, to live a prosperous life and a healthy life. Like you said in the beginning of this call, that you know, we as humans just want a few things. We just want to be able to eat well, sleep well, and and have a roof over our head, 
and hopefully, you know, uh, uh, have a partner or a family and, and be able to share that love with someone else. And um, I think it's life is that simple. Um, but it's not, it's not fulfilling unless you're able to take the blessings that you've been given small or big and be able to bless someone else with it. I think that's when uh, life gets great uh, is, is the blessing and the gift is not in the gift. The gift is in the giving of the gift. And I think that is uh, what I try to do at least on a daily basis is to give my gifts away. We're going to finish the interview very soon, Jason. Um, I think you, you asked the question, which I, I want to ask now. We, we've never really asked this question. I usually ask, how do you pass on your legacy? But before we ask that is, what is your life mission? And how do you, how do you think of passing on this legacy? You know, I'm a man of faith. Um, and when I say I'm a man of faith, I'm not a great man of faith. I, like I said, I, I'm, I sin and I have many struggles and weaknesses. Um, but from a spiritual perspective, my, my mission was always to know and make known the manifest presence of God uh, to my generation. And, um, and I believe the presence of God is that tingly feeling you feel when you watch a movie in the theater like Braveheart or Shawshank Redemption or It's a Wonderful Life and you get those movie magic tingling sensations and you cry and you smile and you laugh and you know the reconciliation and the redemption at the end of that movie, that to me is the presence of God. It's, it's, it's when you hold hands and pray. It's when you give someone a hug. It's, it's, it's when you laugh. It's, it's when you share a memorable moment. It's when you hear an inspirational story. And, and, and that to me is, is the presence of God. And to me, the, my mission is to bridge East and West through media, entertainment, and technology, through talent and story. And I do believe that it's through media and entertainment, and now the distribution network of technology that's enabling these stories and these talents to tell these stories that brings God's presence to the world, whether that's through a movie screen or through an iPad or an iWatch or a mobile iOS or Android. You know, I believe that it is the content that we deliver uh, that will ultimately uh, influence the world for good or for evil. And for me, hopefully, is to spread God's glory and his presence uh, to everyone and anyone that I can through every story that I tell. Excellent, Jason. Jason, on Anything is Possible, we try to share positivity, overcome challenges, and to create one world together. Our last question to our guests is always, Jason Ma, please share with us your number one advice to the audience, especially our younger people. Never surrender. Never give up. Never surrender. Never say never. Because as long as you're breathing, as long as there's another day, there's always another chance. So get off your seat and stop crying, get over it, move forward, and never surrender. And you will become what you were created to become. Super advice, Jason. Thank you for joining us. Um, hope you're having a good time in LA. Um, I'm in Hong Kong and hope to see you in, you know, wherever we meet next time. But um, uh, miss seeing you, but um, I'm sure we'll see each other very soon. And, you know, safe, be safe and uh, stay healthy. You're the man, Patrick, and I can say this, you look a lot better in pandemic than you did before pandemic. I think you've uh, lost some weight and pandemic's done you well, and uh, you must be feeling, feeling, feeling good because you're looking a lot, a lot, a lot better, brother. So I really miss you as well, and congratulations on all your success to show your health 
and uh, and doing the show because I think it's 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 really inspiring a lot of people. So keep doing what you're doing, man. And I can't wait for our show to happen. Hunt, hint, hint. Uh, yeah. We'll we'll be coming to a theater near you. Yeah. Okay, Jason. Take care, brother. Or See you, you soon. Do you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, All right. Exactly. Talk soon, bro. Take care. Peace. Thank you.